Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Who Murdered Jimmy Gall, 1964. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Today we embark on a journey into the depths of a case that will surprise, intrigue, and leave you spellbound. Not just with curiosity, but with a burning desire to uncover the truth and offer closure to a mother who has sought justice for almost 60 years, left in what could only be described as perpetual anguish. Despite its profound significance, for some mysterious reason, this case has remained shrouded in obscurity until now. Body of Crime marks the inaugural exploration of this haunting tale, promising a thorough examination of every thread and intricate detail. Today we delve into the lingering tale of Jimmy Gall, a seven-year-old boy whose bright future was cut short by a savage and brutal act of violence in May of 1964. Join us as we peel back the mystifying layers surrounding this long, unsolved cold case mystery. We not only promise a thorough examination of what has been known, uncovered, and shared throughout the life of this case over the last 60 years, but we also intend to bring forth new facts and information that has never been uncovered until most recently. As we attempt to uncover the truth and offer closure and resolution to a mother's suffering. Despite the passage of nearly six decades since the murder of Jimmy Gall, justice has remained elusive, leaving behind a void that demands some form of resolution. But how did this dormant case resurface from the accounts of the hundreds of other cold cases that still plague the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department? in California. As if written for a Hollywood movie, life was breathed back into this case in 2003, when one of the young children who had known Jimmy Gall, a lady now in her 40s, who had played and went to school with young Jimmy in Citrus Heights as a little girl in 1964, visited the house where her and her family had lived, surprising the new homeowners with their visit. I was uh, home alone uh, with my son, who was one years old at the time. You know, they just knocked on the door. I see four strangers standing there. I answered the door, and one of the women introduced herself to me as a child resident that was living in the house some 40 years ago. And she was just kind of hoping that she could be invited in and check out what it was like now. And, you know, I was a little stunned. But I also admired her, you know, for her boldness to ask for that. Because quite frankly, if my parents ever move out of my childhood home, I think I may have wanted that experience too. Of course, I had no idea her real motive on why she was there. But the two couples came inside and they toured the ground, like the outside and the backyard. And the woman that lived there, she, you know, pointed, oh, we, you know, we used to play in the tree that was right here. And, you know, there was no fence back here. And, you know, she kind of walked me through what she remembered. And then she was in, you know, in the house and just kind of pointing out, oh, there used to be a fireplace here. And, and we talked about that because it's a cookie cutter neighborhood. You know, everybody's house pretty much looks the same. It's just facing a different direction. 
And so I had been in many homes that she was describing that looked just like that. And I knew exactly what she was talking about. And that was pretty much the conversation that I had with her while she was there. But one of the things that stands out to me a lot was is that uh, the other female in the other couple, she was really adamant about making sure that I knew how much this meant to her to come into this house and that it was part of the reason on why they were even visiting. They were from out of state and they came to visit and this was high on her agenda to get to this house and have this time. So I remember that was really important for her to thank me for that. And she never mentioned to me at all the real motive as to why she was there. And, you know, I was a new homeowner, brand new mother, kind of lonely, I guess, and also very proud. You know, I had only lived in the house for a little over a year, and I was excited that somebody wanted to uh, come in and see what we had done. So I didn't have a problem with it, and I never questioned a motive. The new homeowners innocently entertained the nostalgic visit, never expecting to see or hear from the mysterious visitors again. After more than a year, the United States Postal Service delivered the contents of a package that would change the family's life forever. I remember that day, so it's so interesting how I remember some of these details, because I remember getting the mail, and it was a big brown envelope, and it was protruding out of the mailbox, because it was just one of those ones that's on the house. It's not very big. It's enough to hold a letter, but it's not enough to hold a packet. <laughs> so it was just really big, and I was climbing into my car, and I was like, oh, and I realized it was from her, and I remember opening it up. I did not read it right there in the driveway. I was on my way out, but I did come home that day. It was one of the first things that I did as soon as I had a minute, and I couldn't set it down. And I must have read it a dozen times and then, you know, took it to my husband and said, you wouldn't believe this. And he wasn't home when they visited, so he was totally flabbergasted, and I said, I think I take this to the sheriff's department. The package, a mysterious manuscript from Jimmy's young friend, filled with damning evidence that implicates one of her own family members in the murder of young Jimmy Gall. This case has set frozen in history as if time itself had stood still in the quaint, nascent neighborhood of Citrus Heights, where Jimmy, a confident and brave young boy lived, played and socialized with the other young kids of that neighborhood. Many who are now in their 60s and 70s. A case with few leads, no witnesses, and evidence that has since disappeared into the dark ether. As we continue to develop and deep dive this case, it will require the collective efforts of all of our amateur detectives and investigative sleuths. Prepare to don your detective hat, arm yourself with a notepad, and prepare to channel your inner Sherlock Holmes as we bring forth details and information that has remained elusive and hidden for almost 60 years. The nostalgic journey back to the tumultuous landscape of the 1960s America will take you back to a time where doors remained unlocked, neighbors helped raise and protect your children, and kids played outside as we shine our investigative light on the hidden recesses of a society on the brink of transformation, all in pursuit of justice for a young boy whose life was abruptly cut short. You will find an America that is much different than the one we live in today. As we embark on this journey to uncover the truth behind Jimmy Gall's tragic murder, we delve into a world teetering on the brink of change where every neighborhood harbored deep secrets and every corner held the echoes of a turbulent time. Despite its significance, this case has received scant attention until now, making Body of Crime the first podcast to explore Jimmy's story while conducting a comprehensive deep dive into its complexities. This is just the beginning of a journey that promises to keep you engaged eager not just to learn more, but to lend a hand in solving the mystery and bringing closure to a grieving mother. If you were to go back in time to the 1960s, you would be stepping into one of the most tumultuous and divisive decades in world history, where cultural revolutions collided with political upheaval, shaping an era defined by change and uncertainty. The era was marked by the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, an anti-war protest, countercultural movements, 
political assassinations and the emerging generational gap. In 1964, the fashion landscape echoed the daring trends, men embracing surf rock styles and a subculture of greasers sporting tough guy personas reminiscent of the movie Grease. Women donned space-age attire with miniskirts, epitomized by the iconic Dolly Girl look, characterized by teasing long hair and childlike, tight-fitting clothing from scandalous topless bathing suits to knee-high skirts, reflecting a bold defiance of societal norms and a celebration of feminine allure. The musical backdrop featured chart-toppers like Can't Buy Me Love by The Beatles, and A World Without Love by Peter and Gordon in the UK, rocking the airwaves. Popular culture was shaped by iconic artists such as The Animals, The Beach Boys, Bobby Vinton and The Supremes, and the phenomenon of Beatlemania sweeping through enthusiasts much like Swifties in our day today. Iconic films like Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady captivated audiences at movie theaters while household television screens flickered with beloved shows such as The Andy Griffith Show and The Twilight Zone. Kids were enthralled by animated classics such as Bugs Bunny Show and Tom and Jerry. My Fair Lady took home the Academy Award for Best Picture while children engaged in play with toys like Army Men and Tonka Trucks. Passing through the baby boomers of 1946 through 1964, and Generation X from 1965 to 1980, there were no cell phones in this era. Rotary phones, though facing competition from push-button phones, were still the norm in homes. Children played outside, and people either walked or rode their bikes everywhere. As households buzzed with the excitement of Academy Award-winning films and children played marbles or popped willies, the sports world witnessed NBA legends with stars like Oscar Robertson and Will Chamberlain dominating the courts and global soccer stars like soccer legends Pele and Eusebio dominated the soccer fields, captivating audiences worldwide. Amidst this whirlwind of cultural transformation, 1964 stands as a pivotal year in shaping the world's collective consciousness, bridging the gap between tradition and a newer, more modern world that was just emerging. In post-war Europe, neighborhoods were rebuilding from the devastation of World War II, while developing countries confronted the challenges of urbanization and industrialization. In the U.S. and abroad, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963 in Dallas, Texas, sent shockwaves across the United States and the globe. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath, but about 10 or 15 minutes ago, a tragic thing from all indications at this point has happened in the city of Dallas. Let me quote to you this. And I'll, you'll excuse me if I am out of breath. A bulletin. This is from the United Press from Dallas. President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly have been cut down by assassin's bullets in downtown Dallas. They were riding in an open automobile when the shots were fired. The president, his limp body carried in the arms of his wife, Jacqueline, has rushed to Parkland Hospital. The unresolved questions surrounding Kennedy's death lingered, shaping the national discourse and deepening public skepticism about the government and its institutions. Citrus Heights, nestled in Northern California, burgeoned into a symbol of growth and prosperity during the 1960s. Situated as a suburb of Sacramento, it swiftly became the epitome of the American dream, boasting rapid residential and commercial development, a vibrant community life, top-notch services, abundant parks, and a renowned fire department, the world-famous Ladies in White Rescue Squad. Residents reveled in a lifestyle that was both dynamic and fulfilling. At the northern fringes of Sacramento lay the former McClellan Air Force Base with Beale Air Force Base situated a bit further out. Among the proud residents of Citrus Heights were the Gall family, who settled in the Sylvan Park neighborhood, purchasing a home in Minuit Way, constructed in 1959, where most homes averaged $17,000 to $20,000 for a three-bedroom house. Their neighbors, much like themselves, were mostly employees of Aerojet, a company deeply rooted in California's aerospace history. Founded in 1942 in Pasadena during World War II, Aerojet initially focused on aiding the war effort by developing rocket propulsion systems. Given its close ties to the military, particularly the Air Force, many Aerojet employees in Citrus Heights were military veterans. This created a unique bond among neighborhood residents who not only knew each other from their community, but also from their shared workplace experiences. This was the setting where Jimmy Gall and the young boys and girls of Citrus Heights played together. 
where they walked to school in small groups and where they built long-lasting friendships and beautiful memories. It was a small community. We had a post office that was in the grocery store. The first development that really came in was Sylvan Park in Grand Oak. So we moved from Chula Vista, which was an old area of Citrus Heights, into Sylvan Park when I was in second grade. And so the neighborhood was really cool because I'd never lived in the neighborhood. Everybody was friendly. Kids played in the street. We played late. We got up in the morning and we were gone, come home for lunch, and we were gone to be home by dark. You know, we roamed the neighborhood and it was a circle block. And we stayed in that area and then we played in the field across the street. The neighbors all had kids. So we would play Red Rover, Red Rover, to play Red Light, Green Light. We uh, rode our skates. We were on our bikes. We all got along. It was great. So life in 1964, very different. I don't know that the kids today would even survive in 1964. (laughs) Mine would. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny is, is, you know, as I had first started getting into the investigation of this case and looking at how things were back in the 60s, I was laughing and saying, there's no way I could have been a wife in the 60s. I saw an ad for a hairdryer where it hung around you like a purse so that you could look nice and neat when your spouse came home. You you know, all the wives were stay-at-home wives, most of them. But then when we started doing interviews and somebody made a comment about how their parents were like, oh, it's raining? Well, you have a rain jacket. I said, oh, that sounds like me as a parent. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but something that's very unique about this time frame isn't just the innocence of this time frame where people were leaving their doors unlocked and things of that nature, but also things that were significant during that time frame were that people didn't drive around as much. So like now people will, you know, if you're visiting somebody in the neighborhood, you're going to take your car, you're going to drive to your neighbors, hopefully unless they're next, next door, you know, right next door. But back then people didn't get in their cars and drive around even in the neighborhood. You know, they only got in their cars and drove when it was, further out, you know, when they were actually taking a trip or going to work, kids rode their bikes, you know, you saw bikes in yards. So it was a very different time. And then if you can just imagine your president being assassinated and as kids, it's not like it is today. So when something happens, you know, the kids weren't even told what was going on. They were sent home. There wasn't any counselors to like make sure the kids were okay. Like none of that stuff existed back then. With the assassination of President Kennedy, that really shook up America as a whole. And this neighborhood in Citrus Heights was no exception to that. It was something that impacted and reverberated through all the neighborhoods in America and really made people feel unsafe and just gave everyone this feeling of of dread and and just fear. How about those house prices? Yeah. (laughs) You could basically buy a house for less than twenty thousand dollars less than you could a car yeah in today's <laughs> yeah but back then cars were like three thousand dollars five thousand dollars for a brand new car off the lot so yeah. a lot different back then yeah you could get a dozen eggs for a quarter it was funny for me to see some of the different ads from back in that time frame because i think man i can't imagine going into the store and getting like eggs are so expensive <laughs> Yeah, and milk and all that stuff. Everything's expensive, yeah. 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 But like a house, and I even saw where it was listed where you could go rent a place and you're renting for like $200. I'm like, yeah, I wish. Yeah. (laughs) $200. (laughs) (laughs) With the neighborhood that Jimmy grew up in, so this neighborhood was pretty new. Most of the houses had been built within five to seven years, um, most of them even newer than that. A lot of the areas were built up to where like the streets were there, but there was no houses there yet. So there was like empty, empty lots everywhere, basically, because Aerojet was fairly new as well. That brought in a lot of people. Most of the people who moved into those new neighborhoods were employed at the same place. So, you know, not only did their kids grow up together, but they also worked together and and most of them were military veterans which is really unique. And with us being veterans, I know how the military community is. And so I can see where that would be a closer bond for a neighborhood or all of these veterans and then all working at the same place, which is somebody who also supports the military as well. 
At the tender ages of 22 and 19, respectively, James Anthony Gall Sr., a Pennsylvania native and former U.S. Army veteran, turned electronics assembler, exchanged vows with Dolores Marie Flesher, a homemaker from Ohio on June 11, 1955 in Trumbull, Ohio. Transitioning from Cleveland to Chardon, Ohio in 1956, James, young Jimmy's father, found employment at Assembly Products in Chesterland while indulging in his passion for woodworking. Meanwhile, Dolores devoted her time to sewing and knitting. Their eldest child, Kimberly, known as Kim, blessed their lives with her arrival in 1956, heralding the dawn of parenthood for the couple. Their familial joy multiplied on January 31, 1957, with the arrival of their cherished second child and first son, James Anthony Gall, Jr., affectionately known as Jimmy, born under the zodiac sign of Aquarius. Growing up in a nurturing environment alongside his older sister, Kim, Jimmy's early years were imbued with familial warmth and the wonder of childhood exploration. Soon after Jimmy's birth, the Gauls embarked on a new chapter in California. However, their joy was tinged with sorrow when their third child and second son, Timothy, was born in 1958, but tragically passed away within 24 hours. Seeking new horizons, the Gall family embarked on a journey, settling in the burgeoning Citrus Heights area, where James Anthony Gall Sr. began a new career at Aerojet as a serviceman. In 1960, they welcomed their fourth child and third son, Robert Timothy, affectionately called Timmy. Settling in the newly established Sylvan Park neighborhood, surrounded by fellow Aerojet families, the Gulls found solace and community, and Jimmy flourished. Proximity to their children's schools facilitated Jimmy's enrollment at Citrus Heights Elementary School in 1962, less than a mile from their residence. Jimmy quickly found his place among classmates like Stevie and Amy, forging enduring friendships that would shape all their lives on that auspicious first day of school, crossing paths with them in Miss McLaren's kindergarten class. I met Jimmy uh, first day of kindergarten. We were in the same class and same class in first grade. And he and another boy, Stevie, the three of us became very, very good friends. And I was a very shy kid and tiny. I was built like a five-year-old, but I was the size of a toddler. (laughs) (laughs) But really the first friends I ever had were Jimmy and Stevie. And as I said, I met them the first day of kindergarten. And we played at recess and we had lunch and sat together at lunch. They walked with me to, they would have gone past my house on their way to their houses. And they were my best friends. After Jimmy was killed, Stevie's family moved away. So for me, it was kind of a double loss. I lost both of my best friends. And it was probably another three years before I really made any friends that I was close to. I played with the other kids in the neighborhood, but there wasn't anybody that I can think of that I was close friends with for several years after. Described by some as having a sweet disposition and protective nature, particularly towards his friend Amy, Jimmy embraced the joys of childhood, especially those quintessential 1960s activities. From outdoor adventures and timeless pastimes such as marbles, These activities filled his days while dreams of the future intertwined with the innocence of youth. As Jimmy navigated the halls of elementary school and the new construction sites of the growing Citrus Heights community, he seamlessly integrated into the neighborhood with his newfound companions, anchored by the support of his loving family and the camaraderie of his neighbors. Amidst the backdrop of the 1960s suburban life, Jimmy's story unfolds intertwined with the fabric of a transforming society. Jimmy, innocent and full of life, and Amy crafted dreams of a shared future. He was the sweetest, nicest boy. He was funny in kind of a quiet way. He was very protective of me. He was just the sweetest kid. Families in this working-class community were gearing up for weekends of quality family time as the school year drew to a close and summer beckoned. Saturday, May 2nd, 1964, 
In the idyllic suburban landscape of Citrus Heights, California, it was no ordinary day because excitement buzzed through the air as the funfair shows set up at the Grand Oak Shopping Center, promising a day of carnival delights for the eager children of Citrus Heights. The weather hovered around a pleasant 70 degrees, with a gentle drizzle starting around 3 p.m., a scene straight out of the swinging 60s. Among them was Jimmy Gall, a spirited young husky boy of four feet tall, weighing 55 pounds, with light brown crew-cut hair and brown eyes. Clad in green jeans, patched at the knees, a task most likely done by his mother, a blue plaid shirt, and sturdy black boots, Jimmy eagerly waited the promised trip to the carnival, his pockets jingling with 25 cents, in today's currency, almost $5. As his father, James Anthony Gall Sr., who had just completed his overnight shift at Aerojet, slipped into bed, he assured the children that upon waking that he would take them to the carnival. Throughout the day, the children engaged in various outdoor activities would periodically check in on James to see if he had woken with anticipation of their trip to the carnival. Under the morning sun, Jimmy, accompanied by his sister Kim and their friend Gay Harvey, who lived just two doors down, gathered in front of Gay's house as her father installed a new shiny chrome light on her bicycle. Jimmy lived two doors down. The garage lived on the right. I lived at 7240 Minuet. The garage, Donna was my girlfriend, lived on the right. And then next to them were the Gauls. I was kind of a tomboy. And he was the one that I played with. And then the girl across the street and Donna on occasion. Mostly Jimmy because of the outdoor activity. I was very athletic and very hyperactive and doing things and Jimmy was too and he was so easy to get along with the girls loved it he just fit right in he was never rude or condescending or cracked you know off color jokes like some boys get uh and he mainly hung out with us girls that particular day Jimmy came over in the morning I was out in the front yard his sister they were both on bikes and my dad had come over and brought a, a new chrome light for my bike and it had a horn a beep beep dad was putting that on and stuff and so of course i got to ride my bike and check it out she was beyond excited to show off the new upgrade to her bike and eager to enjoy the day outdoors with her friends following this they embarked on a bike ride around the block encountering older children who proved to be less than friendly near donald shepherd's house who everyone knew as don sometime during the day Gay fell from her bicycle, scratching and damaging the new light her father had gotten her. And sullenly, filled with disappointment at damaging the new gift, the children dropped their bikes off. We hopped on our bikes, and then his sister Kim uh, went home because she had a birthday party to go to. So we rode our bike around the block, and we got to Rain Tree, and there's a group of older kids, a couple of years older, that always harassed us. Just, you know, would say things to us as we're riding by. So Jimmy and I decided, well, we're not going back that way. And then as we're coming around Rain Tree, getting back on Calvin, I fell and I scratched my new light. So I was very upset. So I said, well, let's go home and drop our bikes off. So I'm done. The children venture on foot to the field behind the homes that sat across the street from where they lived. The fields were future home developments with the skeleton of roads that outlined future housing plots. It is here where the children of the neighborhood found adventures and played. The older teens from the high school used the desolate roads with no homes as a lover's point with collections of beer cans and trash littering the future neighborhood. In order to access the field, they had to cross the yard of the houses that sat across from their homes. Most of the houses had fences that prevented crossing into the new construction development. But one home, the Doolittle residence, didn't have a fence, just a retaining wall. This is typically where they crossed from their street into the field. And this was a concern for Jimmy and Gay. Doolittle's house was the only house in our vicinity that you could get to the field because he had no back fence. He had a tall retaining wall and the field dropped down. Well, about a week or two before this all happened, Mr. Doolittle told Jimmy that he couldn't play over there anymore because boys didn't play with girls so the Doolittle's daughter told me like on a Thursday that they were going to go outside the Bay Area to visit her grandparents and they'd all be gone so Jimmy and I knowing that and the car being gone Friday and Saturday morning decided we'll cut through his yard 
Jimmy wasn't allowed to. So we did. It wasn't a big deal. And so we're out playing with our marbles. My sister's on the other side of the field to our right. And we go to the left towards the dill and right to the edge of the second house and in about 100 feet. And there's this mount that creates a backstop and it's got like a little hood on it. So we'd set up our marbles and so we had a backstop and it was kind of like a half a tunnel and it was low, really low. So when you squatted down, nobody could really see you unless you're standing on something like a retainer wall. So we're down there playing probably 30, 40 minutes and we stand up and we look and Mr. Doolittle from his house is on the retaining wall just watching us and we're like, what? Oh my God, he's home. You know, and all I could think about Jimmy was, how am I going to get home? You know, cutting through his yard, I'm not allowed. Wanted to be respectful. So we played, continued to play, and then we didn't see him. But he stood there and watched us for a while. And we could still see my sister afar. So we decided to walk back. I had a headache, and we were going to go to the carnival. And it was probably close to 12, maybe a quarter to. So we start walking towards Doolittle because we don't see him and we're going to cut through and sneak. As soon as we get maybe 20 yards, he pops up and he's on the retaining wall and we froze. So we just kept on walking towards him and we got eye to eye. And he said, hi to me and gave me a, a pass with his arm, go through. And he looked at Jimmy and he shook his head and his hand movement gesture, no. So right then I had fear and the first thought in my mind was, how is Jimmy gonna get home? So I looked at him and we're standing right next to each other and with the body gesture, I'll be okay. So I left him there. Well, my sister's still out there. Comes home about 25, 30 minutes later and uh, she told me that Mr. Doolittle was still out there watching them and he was there at the retaining wall when she cut through. And Jimmy was over where we were playing marble. That's the last time I had any connection with him. In the field, the dirt trails, foxholes, and hills created a tapestry of adventure and excitement that was an exciting playground for neighborhood escapades. The alfalfa weed swayed waist-high, creating a natural playground for the children, thicker in some areas than others. The children who played there often played army, marbles, and explored the empty canvas of the future housing development. And as Gay walked home, Jimmy returned to the field, where Joy, Gay's sister, continued to hunt for butterflies. It would be the last time that Gay would see Jimmy alive. Eventually, another neighborhood kid, Guy Nelson, would join Jimmy and Joy in the field. After Joy returned home, Jimmy and Guy continued playing together in the field, according to Guy's future statements to detectives. According to Guy's statements, the boys had played army in the field, and at some point, Jimmy had somehow retrieved his bicycle. He told Guy that he was heading home to fetch a magnet. Guy watched as Jimmy pedaled off towards Minuet Street, where Jimmy resided. However, around 3 p.m., rain began to fall, dissuading Guy from joining Jimmy for further outdoor adventures. When Jimmy returned to the field a short while later, he was on foot and without his bike, braving the rain alone. In the Gall residence, Jimmy's absence soon became increasingly alarming, sparking a flurry of frantic searches and worried calls to neighbors. By 5 p.m., the Gall family had contacted the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, initiating a desperate search effort involving over 100 deputies, firefighters, the ladies in white, and concerned residents. Despite their exhaustive endeavors, Jimmy had not been found, casting a shadow of fear and uncertainty over his family and the community. Throughout the afternoon, witnesses reported sporadic sightings of Jimmy. Someone reported seeing him riding his bike. Someone else reported seeing him chasing after a blue car with the for sale sign in the window. Someone else saw him alone in the field. Search parties scoured through the night into the early morning. With a little more than an hour of rest, Jimmy's father, James Sr., resumed the search throughout the morning, tirelessly scouring the area for his son until approximately 7.30 a.m. the following morning. And then his dad came over, it was after two, looking for him. And uh, I told him where he was, where we last left him. And then about five o'clock or so, the ladies in white, which is 
ladies that work with the sheriff's department, the volunteer nurses, comes and gets me and takes me around to where we were, took me to Jimmy's house. We looked underneath the bed. We looked in the closet. His parents were already on the move. The neighborhood started gathering up with people. The cops showed up. It was getting dark. felt dark and wet, and there was a mood of fear. Obviously, all the kids in the neighborhood were excited about this carnival. Everybody was excited about this carnival. It seemed to be the buzz, and it seems like this carnival is one of those events that anchors you to that day right. as being significant. In speaking to some of the children from, from that time period, a lot of them recall being excited about going to this carnival. Right. And obviously, Jimmy and his, and his siblings would have been super excited about it as well. The decision to cross over Mr. Doolittle's yard and go into the field seems to be like an ominous event. Even when Gay describes it, she talks about how there was some hesitation just because of the animosity between Mr. Doolittle and young Jimmy. You have to keep in mind that they're little, first of all. So I just want everybody to be aware of the fact that when you're dealing with kids, and I'll give you an example. My husband got upset with some kids next door who were, I'm not going to say violently, but like they were kicking balls over towards our yard and they were landing really close to his car. So he got up annoyed and went out and said, hey, stop kicking the balls over here. I don't want you to hit my window. Those kids could be thinking, man, that's a meat old man. Like, you know, and you're a kid, so... Maybe he's not, you know, maybe he's just an adult who doesn't want you to break his window because he didn't have to pay for it. So there's that. Then you don't know the dynamics either. So now I did talk to a lot of the kids from back then because I wanted to understand, did boys and girls play together? Was that normal? Because one of the things that Gay shared with us was that Mr. Doolittle had made a comment about boys not playing with girls. So did he have an experience that was unsettling for him that gave him that mindset? Was it a mindset particularly from him passed down in his family? And when he was standing on the retaining wall, was he doing it because he was making sure that Jimmy wasn't mistreating the girls, even though he would have been outnumbered. But, you know, was he out there, you know, mistreating the girls? And the other thing, too, is I think it's very important to believe what children say as well. And one of the reasons that a lot of children for a lot of years and even still today don't bring forward certain things that happen as children is because they're told, respect your elders, do what they say. They're the ones in charge. And so they don't tell their parents because they're like, this is an adult. They're in charge. I'm doing what they're saying. If they're telling me to do it, it must be right. So you have to be aware that they're young when they're talking about this, but you have to be aware also as a parent and thinking back to when you were a child, did this behavior seem strange? Right. What do you think? Do you think that any of that behavior was odd from your perspective? I think that it can be perceived as strange. Um, you don't know why he's on the retention wall. You know, you don't know why he's watching the kids and he definitely could have been watching them to make sure they were okay. That That is a possibility. But I know from Gay's explanation of what she remembers of that day it was unsettling for her and it seemed ominous to her and when they tried to come back after he disappeared off the retention wall and they tried to walk back to the neighborhood she recalls and this is something that would that would really stick with you as a child that he did not allow him to pass the yard to return home now that leads to a gap of information because somehow he got his bike So originally he left his bike in Gay's front yard, but then later on when he's playing with Guy, he has his bike, which means at some point he either did cross the yard and went and got his bike and came back, or someone brought his bike to him, one or the other. And so now I want to set up for everybody what this kind of looks like. So Jimmy lived next door to one family, and then on the other side of that family, so if you're looking out Jimmy's front door, There's a home on his left, no home on the right. And then there's the home next to that is Gay's house. Their houses faced Mr. Doolittle's house. So when they're talking about crossing through his yard, 
because his house is kind of situated almost kind of in between theirs. So if they were both to walk out of their houses, they would kind of meet in the middle and then try to go through Mr. Doolittle's yard, basically, or the side of his house. And then behind his house is where all the undeveloped area is. So there's no houses. You know, typically when you're in a block, you can go in your backyard and there's another house behind your house. No houses were developed there to include across the street, which is where the field was where they would play. Right. There was the the skeleton of the road there for the future of that neighborhood. Right. So what they would do is they would cross through the yards and then they would go across the street into that field. And then that's where they had their, you know, little they would play. Yeah. The neighborhood playground. It seems to me like the very last person to see Jimmy or to play with Jimmy would have been Guy. Guy would have been the last one to see him driving home to go get his the magnet that he said he was going to go get. Right. And then after that, we would assume that his mother saw him when he got home to get the magnet. Which she did. So she spoke to him and she was, at the time, she was doing some accounting homework and he came in, and of course the kids were excited about the carnival, so he came in, tried to see if his dad was awake. His dad wasn't awake yet. And the timing, that timing around there was somewhere around 2, 2.30 when he left his mom's house. When he left his mom's house at that point, he left his bike leaned up against the house and left on foot. So, which if you're going to the field, which he told his mom, I have to go back out there, I forgot something. And mind you, Guy was waiting on him. And Guy said that he was standing at the back of his house, looking at the field, waiting for Jimmy to come back. But then it started raining at three. So he had no plans of going back out there. So Jimmy proceeds on foot, whichever way he went, whoever's houses he tried to cut in between. Most of the kids who lived in that neighborhood said that most of the houses, the families couldn't afford to fence in like their backyard and they didn't have retaining walls. And so most of the backyards didn't have fences. So Jimmy, to our knowledge, the last person who actually would have seen him would have been his mom at that point. And then Guy said he never saw him after that. So he didn't see him from the time he went home to when he was supposed to go back out to the field. Do we know if Mr. Doolittle saw him again? Has anyone ever questioned Mr. Doolittle about the last time that he saw Jimmy Gull? Do we know? So Mr. and Miss Doolittle did say that they saw Jimmy taking a shortcut through their yard, headed home a little bit before 2 p.m. Now, this lines up with a Miss Denny who observed him in the field. She says a little after 2 p.m. So I would say that their timings are, are pretty close together. This is probably around the time that he went home because this would line up with about the 2.30 time frame. This is also about the time when Jimmy's father woke up. So his father was probably either getting up or got up right after Jimmy had come home. So then he returns to the field. And that's the point where nobody saw him at that point. After a short time of Jimmy not coming home, obviously the family becomes extremely concerned. And by 5 p.m., they're already raising the flag. They're already reaching out to the sheriff's department. And so mind you, he told his mom that he would be back, that he would be right back. So he wasn't saying like, I'm going out to the field to play again. He said, I'm going out to the field to get something. And maybe his plan was, I'm going out to the field to tell Guy I can't come back out Mm -hmm. and then come right back because he was excited about going to the carnival. When he doesn't come home, 3, 3.30, his parents are like, what's going on? And at the time, his dad was a little frustrated because he's like, they've been coming in and out of the house all day, like waiting for me to get up because he worked a night shift. Right. And now I can't round the kids up to get them to take them to the carnival. So... They start calling around, so they start calling neighbors, and they start asking kids in the neighborhood, hey, have you seen Jimmy? Everybody was like, no, I haven't seen him since, you know, this time or whatever. And so by 5 p.m., because they waited a a while, and that's actually a pretty significant amount of time between about 3, 3.30 and 5 for a 7-year-old, they decided to call the sheriff's department. So Dolores, Jimmy's mom, calls the sheriff's department. And this initiates a search party that lasts throughout the night. Yes. And according to all of the kids and the parents who are still living, this search started and ended while it was dark. And that's important for everybody to understand because when it's dark and just depending on what the alum was as well, they're out there with flashlights. It's not as easy 
to look for somebody. And where they're looking for him at in this field, there's alfalfa weeds. It's one of the reasons that it would make sense if Mr. Doolittle was trying to keep an eye on the kids, if he was standing on the retaining wall because the kids were like bent down playing. And when you're bent down playing in those alfalfa weeds, you can't be seen from somebody's window of their yard looking across the street into that field. So in order for him to have seen them with them in the alfalfa weeds, he would have had to have stood on the retaining wall in order to have seen them to look in down. the weeds. I gotcha. Melford Burl Vandegrift, known to most as a devoted mathematics teacher at Norte del Rio High School and a caring neighbor had spent most of the night as part of the search party searching for Jimmy with the rest of the neighborhood. Around 7.30 to 7.40 a.m., Vandegrift, after a short break from search efforts, decided to resume searching for Jimmy on his own. He drove his truck out to the field and continued searching for Jimmy. Pulling up to the field, Vandegrift backed his truck onto the field where he planned to search and almost immediately spied a troubling sight. Jimmy's tiny toes protruding from beneath a mass of brush, likely alfalfa weeds, from the field. Filled with dread, Vandegrift notified the authorities and awaited their arrival to confirm what he suspected to be Jimmy Gall's body. Seven-year-old Jimmy lay lifeless, his small body bearing the cruel evidence of violence. Naked and bruised, his discarded clothes lying next to him with other articles served as silent testimony to the horrors that had unfolded. It was a scene that defied comprehension. Jimmy had been subjected to unspeakable acts, leaving the community reeling in shock and sorrow. He had been sexually assaulted and strangled with a piece of cloth by what was believed to be an article of his own clothing, the fabric still tied around his neck and his genitalia showed evidence of mutilation. Detectives meticulously analyzed the scene, noting a stark contrast in the ground's condition. Dry earth directly beneath Jimmy's lifeless form, juxtaposed with damp soil surrounding him. Evidence of the intermittent rain. Detective Munizik's somber conclusion was that Jimmy had been assaulted and murdered at or close to where he had been found. The pronouncement sent shockwaves through the community, reverberating even within the corridors of law enforcement. Sacramento County Coroner George L. Nielsen, who served at the coroner's office from 1958 to about 1981, a seasoned professional hardened by years of confronting death, confessed that Jimmy's case stood out amongst the multitude he had encountered. In his six years as the county coroner at the time, it remained the most heinous crime he had been involved in. Later, a pair of neighborhood boys would venture out, like young boys usually do, curious to understand what had happened to Jimmy, and recounted that the exact area where Jimmy had been found had been a shallow foxhole with a dirt berm that could have served to conceal the despicable act that had resulted in Jimmy's death. The hole had measured about two feet in depth and two feet in diameter, adding a chilling layer to the narrative. Let's talk about the fact that Vandegrift, who was, from my understanding, was a, a World War II veteran, found the body of Jimmy Gall. And from my understanding, Vandergriff's son, his younger son, was best friends with Jimmy Gall. They were really close friends. They were in the same class in first grade or something. And so here he is, obviously knowing Jimmy, and he's out there trying to find Jimmy, and he comes upon the body, and he notifies the authorities. According to multiple neighborhood kids and parents during that time frame, this stood out a little odd to everybody because of a couple things. One, Vandegrift didn't live in that immediate area. In order for Vandegrift to get to that area, the road, so if you were to pull up the map based on where he lived, the area that would made most sense to drive that way, and mind you, back then, people weren't driving around like that. He could have walked, he didn't. 
So he took his truck and in order for him to get there, he actually had to go pretty much around the entire neighborhood to drive over there near that field to get into the field. And then he backed his truck into the exact area where he found him. And he did it by himself after he had been part of the search and did it outside of the time frame where Jimmy's own father was looking for him. So very close to the time where Jimmy's father stopped searching for him in the morning when he went back out. So those things don't sit well with the neighbors and their children during that time frame. When you say it doesn't sit well, what you're really saying is that a lot of them found it just too coincidental that he drove his truck right to the place where he found Jimmy. Right. And backed his truck in. And even that's listed in a newspaper article. So there's a newspaper article that says that he backed his truck in and found him. Now, remember that this area was set up to put houses, but there was no houses there yet. So there was roads. So he could have, you know, most people, especially if you're looking for something, most people are going to park on the road and then they're going to walk into the field, especially if you're looking for something, you're not going to want to drive over them. Yeah. So that just comes off as odd. And even for the kids growing up and becoming adults, of course, their mentality was a little bit different as children. And, and then once they became adults, they're like, it seemed even more strange to them because they're like, why would you drive out there? And a lot of them had to explain to me, you know, I had to understand the map at the time, because of course, when you're looking at the map now, there's houses everywhere to understand why yeah. it seems strange to everybody. Now, I know we're going to talk about the investigation in, an, in a separate episode to kind of go over the investigation, but the initial reaction to the scene by the, the police who showed up. So one of the initial things that comes out when they first come out and look at the body is that they note some bruises. They note that there's still a piece of cloth around his neck, which they said appeared to be his own clothing. And they note, the stick-like item protruding from his buttocks. They also note that the ground beneath him is dry, but the ground around him is wet. And the reason that that's important is because that's an indicator as to whether he had been there before it started raining or if somebody had taken him and put him back. So if somebody took him away from the site from wherever he had been assaulted and they brought him back, then the ground would be wet beneath him as well. Or right. unless it was covered up with something. Right, unless, yeah. Now, I know that we requested the autopsy, and because of California law, we're not able to get it because it's still a cold case, so, so we're not able to get the autopsy. So California does not consider their cases closed or cold. So a lot of states, after so many years, they'll release certain things. California is not one of those states. So Of course they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, the other thing, too, is that a lot of states also don't release autopsies of minors either. Right. Now, we know some details that adds to our knowledge base. I'll say that. The reason why I say that is because was there a determination on how long he had been deceased? Were they they able to tell based off rigor mortis? None of that was, was put out. I'm sure I could find that out, but yeah. Yeah. Also, another question that I would have just based off them, some of the other investigations that we had, is if he was moved or carried or dragged, there'd be different signs of lividity. Do we know if there was any of that? No. Okay. In a case where somebody has been moved, it's telling dependent upon when they were moved. When somebody passes away, regardless of how, when the blood settles in the body, it pulls at whatever area is against the surface. So if you're laying on your back, then you're going to see that blood pulling on the back side of the person. If you're laying on your side or the front, same deal. And it causes your body to have a bruising that's called a line of lividity. Right. It's like a linear bruising that you can see on the body. Right. And so if somebody is moved after a certain time frame, so there's certain hours, body starts to change where it gets hard, where it gets soft, and certain things happen to the body. And so the stage of rigor mortis right. is how the coroner is able to determine most closely when the person passed away. Right. And so if you're moved after the blood pooling has settled and is fixed, then if you move the body after that point, then if you place them in a different position, it's going to be obvious because you're going to see lividity in an area that you shouldn't based on how they're laying. Those are ways that they can tell initially in seeing somebody if 
okay, this doesn't make sense. They were moved. Those are some things that you can see right away when you come upon a body and you're doing your initial investigation. I think it's important to understand that this is 1964 and that the police were not as savvy in terms of CSI and different strategies for investigation. And the reason why I say that is because I don't want our listeners to confuse what we're able to do today with what they were doing in 1964. Right. Back then, it was more like on-the-job training. There was no No CSI van that came out, you know, like... People from the coroner's office generally would come out. Maybe you'd have like a toxicologist that would come out, something of that nature, um, because they did collect blood, things like that. So, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. We'll get a little bit more in depth with all of that. I think when they talk about the two boys going back out and venturing out to the field and finding that where Jimmy had been found was actually in a little bit of a depressed area in the ground, more of like a little shallow foxhole. And I think that's really important because it can explain why maybe they didn't find the body when they were doing the search. If he was covered up with alfalfa grass and and they didn't walk over that area, they may have missed signs of evidence that he was there. So especially at night in the dark. Right. So it was dark when they were doing the search. It was dark when they stopped doing the search. And so not just that, but the alfalfa weeds were thicker in some areas than others. But the alfalfa weeds were how they describe it as being waist high for an adult. So pretty high. And like we said earlier, in order for a child to be seen, you had to be up high to even be able to see in there if they were in the middle of those alfalfa weeds. And then his body was found covered with some type of brush as well. So it wouldn't have been easy to find him at night. The last thing that I wanted to talk about is the clothing. There have been some statements that said that his clothes were folded neatly next to the body. And I know that in your narrative, you said that the clothes were next to the body. Were they folded? They were not. They were not folded. And the reason that that is important is because, so there's certain things that occur psychologically with people who commit crimes when they do things like show special care. And so folding of clothes and leaving them next to somebody's body would not be a normal, everyday, average, run-of-the-mill criminal. There's just certain things that you can pick out from this suspect based on those things. And so that's important to know. They were not folded. And keep in mind that this was a point in time when the person's not going to be worried about leaving DNA and things of that like that's not even going to be a thought in the person's mind because that didn't exist now they did test blood more of like how you would think of how they test your blood when you give blood to like do like a screen or match but not looking at somebody's dna so that's just not something that somebody would have been thinking a lot about back then they did do fingerprinting so if the clothing of article had any blood on it any type of material on it that would have been something that they would have bagged and took in with them. Yes, and, it would have been. And it would have been evidence. Yes. The haunting tale of Jimmy's untimely demise in 1964 continues to reverberate through the corridors of Citrus Heights, leaving an indelible mark on the community and beyond. But our journey is far from over. It's just getting started. Many of the children from Citrus Heights, who are now adults, have spent the last 60 years with haunting questions about this day. Why did Mr. Doolittle prevent Jimmy from coming home? Some have speculated that he disliked Jimmy and he was home alone that weekend, his wife and children away on a trip to visit family. Could he have intentionally isolated Jimmy for nefarious reasons? Another of the Citrus Heights children speculates the irony of Vandergrift backing his truck at the exact location where Jimmy's body was found. How did he know where to look? Was this an unfortunate coincidence? Join us in the next episode as we dive deeper into the investigation that shook Citrus Heights to its core. Discover how advancement in forensic technology have opened new avenues of inquiry, offering fresh perspectives, untangling the web of mysteries surrounding Jimmy's death. Don't miss out, because just when you think you have it all figured out, the truth may prove more elusive than you ever imagined. Stay informed, stay engaged, and stay tuned for the next installment in this gripping series. The pursuit of justice for Jimmy Gall continues, and together we will unravel the truth behind one of history's most confounding unsolved mysteries. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. 
If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.